Daniel, man, thanks for being on the podcast and taking the time to come out here. Oh, man, I appreciate you guys letting me come out here and have, and talk about all this stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, when you walked in the room, I ain't seen you in 10 years. Yeah. The last time I saw you, I was a, um, a master sergeant. I was a team sergeant of a newly created SIF company. Uh, and it was C210 is the name of the unit, but it was a, a sniper reconnaissance team. And I think I brought an assault team as well. But we showed up at AMU coordinated, and it was you, Payne, and uh, Sweeney. Sweeney yep. as well. Yeah. It was funny. I actually have the the C two ten shirt that you gave me on this trip. Really? Yeah. Yep. Hundred percent. The tan one. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, that's awesome, yep. man. <laughs> yep. I'm pretty sure it's in my bag right now. Yeah, it's yeah. the the eagle and the yeah yeah. Damn, that's awesome, man. Yeah, we had a. Uh, in fact, two Lamb from Running Tactics, uh, we brought both of our recce teams out, and I think we brought an assault team as well. Um, at, at the time, you guys had a good sergeant major and commander, yep, and they were real good with facilitating training, especially with us standing up a new company. At, at the time, I didn't even know, man. I didn't even know the Army Marksmanship Unit did. I knew they trained Big Army, but I didn't realize you can go to you guys and train. Uh, I would say that's the most unutilized, underutilized resource in the army. I mean, they they've got the world's greatest shooters there, and and army units can request them basically for free. Yeah, you just pay TDY. So. Yeah, that's the when I found out about that deal because we were looking at going to train with you know Jared or Latham or somebody, and I found out that we could save the actual cost of the institution by just showing up paying TDY. It was a no-brainer for us. Yeah, I mean, we didn't like Fort Benning. Nobody likes Fort Benning. Nobody likes Fort Benning. Right? <laughs> yeah, but we showed up, and um, at the time, so let's do this because I want to get into this, man. There's so many things to talk about. I, I kind of want to give context to your background growing up. Okay. Um, I know you're a hunter. I know you're a shooter, obviously. But how did you grow up, and and what led you to get into shooting? So, I mean, I grew up uh, out in the country in Virginia. And uh, started carrying. I started shooting pellet rifles when I was three. Uh, I mean, I, that's I've been shooting literally my whole life. But uh, when I was a little guy, you know, five, six, seven years old, I would take my dog and my twenty-two rifle, and we go hunt squirrels. You know, every single day. And I grew up hunting and everything like that. But uh, my and and that's what I enjoy to this day like I can yeah. go grab a 22 rifle and take the dog out in the woods like that's a, that's a great day to me um but uh as far as the competition that started when I was 12 because my dad he was a veterinarian and um he got robbed so a guy mm. came in and pulled a gun uh at the veterinary clinic and wanted to steal all the money and everything like that and he laid the gun down for a quick second my dad jumped across the table and took it back from him and big fight and uh, and he ended up going to uh, the the guy ended up going to jail for a really long time. But my dad, uh, he was like, "Well, I'm going to start carrying a gun. I'm going to start carrying a gun in my pocket." Uh, he had a Glock in the drawer, but he couldn't get to it because the guy walked in with a pistol. Um, so, but he, he said, "Well, if I'm going to carry this thing, I need to know how to use it." So he started getting involved with the local IDPA matches, and so I was 12 years old. So I stood in the back corner, you know, and picked up brass and tape targets and kept score and all that. And eventually, they said, "Hey." you know, why don't you come out and give it a try? And which of course I've been wanting to do the whole time, yeah. but you know, I was real, <laughs> yeah. real young and, um, I went through it real safely and they continued to encourage me and I continued to, to improve. And, um, I was homeschooled my whole life. So, uh, basically I would, after we started competing, 
I would, uh, we were fortunate enough to have a guy named DR Middlebrooks, who's a world champion pistol shooter, like 35 minutes from the house. So I would get up in the early in the mornings, I'd do my school and then my mom would take me to the range and I'd work at the range. And that's what I did from the time I was 12 until I left for the army. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I was generally, I was generally at, at the range every day, whether I was shooting or not, I was, you know, painting steel or carrying targets or doing something. Yeah, being so you, private. You were, you were, yeah, you were private early on, a twelve-year-old private. Yep. So you were, you were, so your dad started shooting IDPA because of that situation. Because of that situation. Yeah. Wow, man, yeah, that's and crazy. that's what propelled you to get uh-huh. into gun. Hundred percent. Oh we we always look back and it's like, man, if it hadn't been for that guy, that one, like a lot of people would look at this terrible event. You know, guy comes in and sticks up the place and you know threatens to kill everybody. I wouldn't be sitting here with you today. Wow, man, that's insane. It's pretty cool. It is really cool because he, I mean, so when you get to 12 years old and you're starting to shoot IDPA, you're, you're starting out with a, a good foundation for defense, but also defense, defense tactics, but also for practical shooting as well, right? Definitely. Yep. What, what, what was the first gun that you remember shooting? Um, I had a, a first gen Glock 17, and my dad had bought it from wow. a guy. Yeah, it was like, it was super old and had a ton of rounds through it. Uh, and it actually came from the police department. So it had been issued, yeah. you know, this whole time. And finally it got up. to the point where it's like, this thing's not even, you know, we can't even use it yeah. for this anymore. So, yeah, and that's what I shot for a long time. Um, and then I went from that to a uh, Tanfoglio pistol yeah, and the EAAs. And that was what I won uh, my first nationals with was a, an EAA. After I got done with that, I started shooting SDIs before I joined the army. So, were you? How far along did you get in competitive shooting um, before you actually joined the, the army? Um, so, I, I'd won two IDPA nationals and had won a couple of real big three gun matches, and that's what that's what piqued the army's interest to allow me to come in and do a tryout. So, the process generally for AMU. Is that you? Uh, you get you bring kids in, and they have tryout before they join the army. Yeah. Um, so this is like junior, like you could be a high school kid, junior 100%. junior champions or or yep. practical shooting champions. Yep. And so eventually, I, I'm I, once I joined the army, I made it up to where I was the coach of that team, and that it. A lot of guys would come in and say, "Hey, you know, we want to hire guys in the army," and it sounds good, and I want to because they're soldiers, and I want to take care of them. But it puts them at a huge disadvantage. You know, by the time I joined the army as a 19-year-old, I had had seven years of shooting experience. Mm. So you you bring a guy in and you try to hold that that guy that's just getting into competitive shooting to that standard of like, hey, if you don't reach 80% as an average on your first year, we're going to fire you. That puts a lot of pressure on guys. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So it was it really did a disservice to a lot of guys that were were coming in. Because there's no, you got to hit the ground running so hard yeah. that it, we would. There's a very small chance of of somebody being able to get to that level that quickly. So we would. It wasn't that we didn't want to hire those guys. It's just that they're the guys they were competing against were these kids that had you know almost ten years of experience on them. Yeah. So it's, it was a tough deal. So that was the standard because you know I I didn't know a lot about the Army Marksmanship Unit early on, but I knew, you know. I always looked at it as like national match kind of shooting, Camp Perry right. style shooting, right? right. President's Hunter stuff. And 
but I didn't realize they could recruit junior shooters and practical shooting. Right. Was yep. was practical shooting like an IPSC IDPA? Was that even a thing? It it wasn't a thing until early two thousands. Wow. I think it was like two thousand three. They stood up the action team. The action teams with all the three gun USBSA IDPA sniper rifles, all that type stuff. Yeah. So it really is a relatively new thing. Yeah. So how does this process work once you get picked up for AMU, and then you're going into to the unit? How does that tie into army training? Like, do you go to basic training, yep. AIT? After once you once you say okay, once the team hires you, once you pass the the assessment, then you uh, go in just like anybody. You go straight to to. I went straight to OSIT training at Fort yeah. Benning, so I went infantry, infantry basic training. School. Yeah, and um, because that's your that's your real job. You know, you're just assigned to the AMU, but and it's, if as soon as you don't work out for any reason, you go and finish out your commitment in that job yeah so ah so we, you're you're basically 11 bravo 100 percent, just serving uh td not tdy but you're just serving in a capacity at that unit right and then do a lot of amu guys stay in the unit and then after they're done with their amu time go on to different units or do they typically just stay in amu they and then generally stay there if you if you are good enough to make it the the first two to four years then you you can probably continue to progress enough that you can stay um the whole time and you can retire from the amu yeah you had a, you yeah. guys had a when we did long gun stuff we were me and one of my guys as a team sergeant were training up for uh president's hundred and he would he had he was about to retire there he had yep. a big f4 250 white pickup truck oh uh yeah. he'd been there forever yep and i was like you you've been here Lance that long yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he was a national champion though when it oh, came yeah. to that that kind of shooting, which was that yeah. which is it's called what national uh, match, national match, yeah, yeah, high power, high power, yeah. yeah. So, so what was your career path? What was your objective number one of going into AMU, and then what'd you want to get out of it? Man, that was back. At, I understand how important goal setting and stuff is now, but back then I didn't. Yeah. So basically, I was just you know every cool opportunity that I could take advantage of, I was jumping on it. You know, if I could go to a school, if I could you know go on a deployment if i could go train guys like i was just one thing to the next you yeah know, just young young guy trying to do all the cool stuff i could do how does combat work for you guys when you deploy because I, I remember I, I actually remember talking to you about it and i think you told me that you know you guys go down range and you train you're training a combat deployed unit down right. range in that uh, deployment and it's not um it's not out of the norm for you guys to do patrols or do whatever you guys do no they, they what we found at that's basically exactly what we were doing the what we found though was it was just an inefficient way to train mm. because once we got there we would have to move around the country yeah to to get to the units and that was that would take a significant amount of time and then once we got there you know these guys are you know they got a job they're yeah, deploying, yeah. they're they're or they're patrolling they're doing what they've got to do um so there, it was really difficult to get the training. It was way better to do it before they went. Yeah, you know. And then also while we were there, we were helping with the the Afghan National Army. Yeah, uh, standing up there shooting marksmanship program. But uh, the yeah, so it was good. It just I think I don't think they've deployed in a, in a while because it was just not an efficient way to do it. All right, so you had the opportunity to deploy, right? You deployed a couple times, or I did. Yeah, I, I, like I said, it was all training. It yeah, was, there was no, no combat to it. It was, it was just uh, teaching guys. Yeah, so, 
How was that experience for you? Oh man, I loved it. I I really did. Like I I tried to get on as many as I, you know, we could. They were trying to get everybody cycled through to deploy, but anytime there was a slot available, I would try to get to get on it. But yeah, usually didn't work out because they were wanting to put, you know new guys on that hadn't been so how how much of the schedule when amu was doing things like training with us versus shooting actual competitions um and when when you're young when like the new guys i always had them focused on winning the competitions like you have to get validity because otherwise you have no desire to come learn from us right so you got to win and so the the young guys would go and develop themselves get the wins in the championships under the belt then we'd start switching over uh, and teaching and competing and by the time i was done i bet it was it was 50 percent teaching and 50 percent um developing me you know i'm not 50 percent at a competition but you know training and learning and all that type stuff so talk to me through a uh just an average day uh being a member of amu uh, so if you're if you're at home training uh, you usually get there, uh, eight, do PT, grab a quick breakfast, uh, and go out and train for a couple hours in the morning, uh, grab lunch, come back. And if you had admin stuff, you do admin. If not, you go train. And then, uh, either way you try to get another couple hours in, in the evening. Once I got to where I was shooting well, and I was where I wanted to be, I would try to take that time and go to the ammo shop and learn from those guys, go to the shotgun team the rifle team because you know just because there was no reason not to like go learn those skills from all these other world champions it may not apply directly to what i was doing but there was no reason not to broaden you know my knowledge base yeah because you because you, you were focused a lot on multi-gun mm-hmm. uh, yep. uh technical skills and practical shooting and was three gun competition part of your what you would do as at AMU? Or? Oh, 100 percent. Oh, it yep. was. Okay. Yep. That was actually that's what kept me a job. So my, I was rated every year, and once you get there, your first you have to average 80 percent at all your competitions. The next year it's 85. Oh wow, and then it goes it, up. It keeps stepping up till about 92 percent. So you need to be 90 to 92 percent once you've been there for four or five years. How so, many years did you do do total? Uh, 13. So that overall experience, you had 13 years in AMU. What what would you say you took away from that whole experience? Oh, it was it was a great experience. Uh, I learned so much, had so many opportunities. You know, I I learned everything I know about long range rifle shooting there. I learned, you know, I really developed my carbine shooting, my pistol shooting, everything like that. But also got a huge opportunity to go and do the teaching and learn how to teach while I was there. So getting a chance to go and work with guys like you and, you know, guys all around the world um, at a really high level and learn how to take the skills that I know and apply them for the guys that are actually going overseas and going to combat and hopefully making them better, more lethal soldiers uh, as a result. So the way I look at it is I've had opportunity to train that most people don't. So I would train, 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 learn, and then figure out a simple way to communicate those lessons learned. So if if it took me 20,000 rounds to learn something and I can give you that lesson in five minutes, that means you don't have to shoot 20,000 rounds over six months to learn it. I can, you can just say, okay, I'm going to take this. Is it a, is it a hundred percent solution for you? No. 
but it's a 90 or 95% solution for you. And it took you five minutes instead of, you know, five or six months. Yeah. And that's how I looked at it was like, I was, I was developing myself and I was developing this knowledge so that I could take it and feed it to guys simply and efficiently so that they could go overseas and do good work. Yeah. That's what's, that's, what's um, pretty amazing about that overall experience. And, and we, we educate obviously people in this, but the, the experience is key in learning uh, to be a good instructor, right? Because oh, it, it, it takes a long time to learn and perfect your craft in teaching because you've yeah. been teaching since, uh, I mean, really since the beginning. 14, 15 years old. Yeah. yeah and literally. so, and then when you go back and then you, you've learned all those lessons learned and then figure out things that you thought you knew but you really didn't um, and then culminate kind of the tactics and practical shooting together, it's full spectrum, man. You right. come out of that overall. And it's almost, now it's like, at the point in your life, it's preparing you for the next phase or, oh, 100%. or what, it, what it's going to be. Yep. Um, what's your? I wanted to get your take before we move on and talk about what you're doing now. But um, what is your take on the difference between shooting versus tactics? Because you've you're somebody who who has the validity as far as you're an eleven Bravo, you're an infantryman, so you understand tactics. You practically educate and shoot competitively. Um, and practical shooting where there's not a lot of tactics, but there's technical skill sets mm -hmm. and tactics that's required. And then you've taught both on right. each end of the spectrum. What, what's your overall take on the difference between the two and then kind of how they mesh together? So when I was at the AMU, we would start all the classes off with like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to shoot. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, how you get there, how you, you do that piece, how you enter and clear all that, that's on the unit to use their SOPs. But once you decide to shoot something, this is the most efficient way to put rounds on target. Yeah. Um, so I never, I, I purposely stayed away from trying to get into the tactics because every unit is different. You're, you're the way you did things, even though you were in an SF group were different than a way another SF team would probably, would probably take it down. Um, but what I've found is that the best guys in the world at both shooting and tactics just do the basics really really well yeah you know you have you have, instead of i'm you know how to enter a center fed and a corner fed room you don't try to make it more complicated than that yeah yeah you know you see a lot of this stuff on the internet guys with videos like they're just making things complicated to for the purpose of it being cool or entertaining or whatever yeah but the guys that are really doing it really hitting big targets they just do they have very simple rules and very simple tactics that apply to many, many, many different situations. Yeah. And they are really, really good at those very simple things. So you can't, you can't be prepared to enter every single building perfectly. So why, why would you try? Why, why would you not just make certain rules that if I go into a room, this is how I do it every single time. Yeah. And perfect and, that and make it perfect. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know what you're getting into. You know what I do in the competitions. So that's why my stuff's a lot more choreographed in, in, um, the the three gun competition world when i was shooting sniper comps that stuff's totally blind but we had very simple techniques to that would apply to broad spectrum right mm. in a sniper competition if i'm shooting you can only make me engage a unknown distance target or a known distance target that's it yeah you know you might you might throw a mover in there but if i can efficiently engage an unknown distance target and I, then as long as it's an unknown distance target, then I apply that same SOP every single time and make yeah. it very simple. So the things, the distractors going on around you might be different and they might be 
stressful, but the the simple task of putting around on target is is not that different. Yeah, it's all the same. So as an instructor, when I'm teaching military guys, I keep that line drawn perfectly. Like I tell them from the time I get there that I am teaching you how to shoot, how you get to target, you know, how you execute what you're going to do. That's completely on you. But once you decide to shoot something, this is the best, fastest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that, that I'm big on is no matter how high level you get in pretty much any aspect of anything, the guys that, that are performing high level in that arena, whatever arena they're in, it's, they're just doing the basics very, very, very well. So you talk to guys that are the best shooters, the best soldiers in the world. They're just doing the simple things very, very well. They have, they have one skill that's they're extremely proficient at that fits a multitude of different scenarios. So, um, sniper competitions to me are a great example of this, right? They, you know, you might, how you get there and the, the courses of fire that you have to complete might be completely different and lots of distractors, but realistically it's either a known distance or an unknown distance target. So if I have an SOP to engage an unknown distance target, no matter what the distractions are, I just go into that SOP between me and me and Tyler would go in there. And it's if, as soon as we decided we needed to engage that target, he would start building a position on the gun. I would start setting up the spotting position. I know he's milling the target. I'm going to flash millets just to, to sanity check him, but I'm pulling dope out and starting to read the wind. He tells me what the, uh, what the mill is for the target. I give him the hold, give him the wind and we engage the target. It doesn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime or if there's explosions going on or smoke that there's many distractors, but it's still a very simple task that we're, we're completing. And that's my approach to, to shooting and teaching. Yeah. Cause you, you've, it's interesting cause you talk about the, the sniper competition. We competed together yep. in the U S USASOC, uh, U S army special operations command sniper comp. And this, yep. I remember that year cause it was kind of controversial. To, to have you shoot that comp, mm-hmm. at least from the, the soft side, the special operations side. Um, but I thought it was warranted. I thought it, you guys deserved to be there, right? I mean, you guys were at the top of your class. It's like you're bringing your guns, and then, like you said, it's a, it's a technical evaluation. There is no, right. There's little field craft that's required in uh, the use of SOC sniper comp. The stock could be considered one of, the, one of those uh, field craft lanes. But a lot of it's, like you said, the, the basic technical skill sets that you need to execute perfectly. And the person who does it more perfect than the next is the person who wins. Right. You guys won it that year. Right. Um, you guys showed up and we all were, I mean, the best snipers in the world. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, I think, 32, 33 teams of the best snipers in the world um, competing at the highest level. Uh, and you guys uh, beat everybody. Uh, I remember that uh, that year very well. Um, when, we we had a guy. He was he he came up to us at the end of it, you know, and he was one of the guys that was like, "Well, you know, if if you'd have just come off of a deployment, do you think that you'd be as good as you are now?" Basically saying like, "Hey, you know, y'all been training for this, and, and you know, basically it's not fair." And I told him, and I stand by it. Was if if I'd have come off a deployment, I'd be a whole lot better than I am right now. Yeah, because there's lives on the line on a deployment. You yeah, know, I would be really good. You know, I trained up for that for, you know, a few weeks. But if I, if you put me on a team to go overseas, I would be probably 20, legitimately 20% better 
than I was going into that competition because the worst thing that can happen in that competition is you lose. Yeah. And that's not that bad. The worst thing that happened overseas is you get one of your buddies killed because you were incompetent. So yeah. I would be, I, I told him, I was like, dude, if you think I'm good now, put somebody's life on the line. I'll show you what I can be. Cause you'd be honed. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. purpose driven. Yeah. There's everything in life would come second to being prepared to, to do my job overseas. When, when you, when you see the tactical industry in the space now and kind of the direction that it's ebbed and flowed over the last decade, cause you've been part of it. Uh, one, how, how do you feel the direction of the industry is, is going and what's your feel and, and your role in that, uh, industry? Um, I see the industry is always going to be changing and, you know, it's, it's very politically cyclic, you know, mm. based around elections and things like that. It, the industry ebbs and flows. But one thing that I have seen that, uh, is really interesting to me is there's this whole, there's, there's starting to become a line between the entertainment side of marketing and the um the instructional side of of marketing you know a, a lot of guys will put a lot of money into to instagram and social media um and that is a an entertainment form of marketing whereas you know we're starting to see some growth in the the actual instructional where like guys are like okay well this is cool but like i actually want to be able to do some of this stuff like how do i go about that yeah so, that's that's interesting because I mean, hell, 10 years ago, your options were like a special operations guys was Kyle Lamb, Larry Vickers, and there wasn't much out there. And then even the the guys who were tra training as practical shooters were like Matt Burkett and, you know, Rob Latham, if you could afford them. Yeah. But but now you're seeing like a, di a difference in more guys, younger guys like you, Shane, JJ are coming out and then and training um, and teaching, but also that uh, – you know, the, the old special operations guys who did like the Kurt Muse raid or something like that. Now the GWAT class is coming. Right. Yep. And so there's a lot more tactical instructors. What's your opinion on the, the entertainment industry version of this version? I mean, I feel like it's, it's just that, like, I hope people, I hope people see a lot of these Instagram videos and YouTube videos and, you know, guys doing some, some pretty crazy stuff and just take it as entertainment. You know, it's not, a, you don't see, you know, I don't see guys like yourself going out and, and doing combat roles or, you yeah. know, some of the, the crazy stuff that you see online preparing for a deployment. So therefore I know it's not a valid training thing. It's yeah. not, it's not real, you know, so just watch those things and, and enjoy it and take it for what it is. I, I, I hate when I, I, I open up some of my training courses with, I'm probably going to underwhelm you, you know, in this yeah. training uh, evolution, because I want people to understand that, what I'm teaching them is reverting back to the basic fundamentals and skill sets that made us accurate and deadly on the battlefield, or in this case, more able to defend your life. Right. And, it, and you know, I was watching, we were watching a video. Um, you have a website, right? It's what's on, the, it's on Virtus.com. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it, it is that it's, it's all instructional videos from the, the best guys in the world in one spot and the the idea is that it's already been filtered you don't have to determine whether or not this is a valid training technique i mean the guy's got 20 national titles therefore it works um and it's eliminated a lot of the the having to go through and see like what was this guy's credentials so my idea of bringing this website 
out was that if guys want to legitimately get better, if they want to know what the top guys are doing, want to know what the top guys train, all that, this they can go to this website and it's very, very, very affordable. It's like fifteen bucks a month. Which you is can, nothing. I can't believe it's such a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can go learn from, you know, the best in the world and see what we actually do. And and to some degree it is a little bit underwhelming. Like I was we were talking before, you know, one drill that I do a lot is twenty alpha. You put one ipsic target up at twenty yards and you shoot it in the middle five times as fast as you can from a draw. And I will go out and I'll do that for a thousand rounds because if I can do that, I can stand in one spot and hit anything with my pistol. Mm. But you know, as far as uh, a lot of the stuff that you see on on YouTube and and Instagram, man, it's it's you know so some of it's not real good information. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a really politically correct way to say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes. it's a real nice way to say it. I think it's. What's scary to me about that, those circumstances of people teaching tactics that they've basically created, maybe out of their head or something they saw, uh, without the context of experience or the, the technical understanding of why you're doing what you're doing, is kids emulate things. 100%. They, and yeah. you're emulating it with a firearm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, what's, that's what's crazy, man. Yeah. And that's, if yeah. you really think about it from instructors point of view right like if you if you don't have the credibility of the deployments or you don't have the credibility of the the wins you have to do something that's just different yeah otherwise you why would somebody learn from them you know you you have to be like well i've got the latest kool-aid like i've got the coolest thing you need to come learn from me because i know something that they don't know all right so you, you do the 13 years you do um you just got done last year right you just yep. got uh November of 18, I guess. And so, then you, you segued into the reserves a little bit? Yep. Okay. In the reserves, uh, helping out there if I can. So so let's talk about a little bit before I get into the what you have going on now, and I promise I'll get to that. But um, you had a pretty amazing career uh, at the top uh, echelons of competition shooting, including Three Gun Nation, USPSA, and the list goes on. Talk about some of those highlights of the of the the, uh, the kind of pinnacle. Um. Um, so for me, the the matches when guys are like, oh, you know what what match was most important to you, or the the things that come to my mind, any of the the team stuff. That's that's my favorite. That's those are the things I look back on with a lot of pride. Me and Tyler Payne shot a lot of those, and we won every one that we entered, and that was pretty cool. Um, there was another match called the NRA, or it still goes on, the NRA World Championships. So there's, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's 16 or 26 different disciplines. So you go and you shoot high power, you go and you shoot bullseye pistol, you shoot USBSA, mm-hmm. you shoot skeet and trap. And it's it's the aggregate of all of those things is the, the NRA World Champion. And I've, I won that uh, the year I shot it. And I was pretty proud of that because, it, you know, you go and you shoot against the best guys from all these different disciplines. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just kind of the who's the most well-rounded shooter. Yeah. And uh, I was I was pretty proud to uh, to win that one. And um, Three Gun Nation, too. You had yeah, a Three Gun Nation. Yeah. Won that a few times. And that that one, to me, it's, it's really important to me, but that's kind of like, that's what I do. So for me to win that, I feel like that's kind of more like I'm supposed to go do that. So, yeah. Um, I would I would make a plan a really good like I have a, a mental management program that I work pretty hard um, to go and win those types of things. It was the stuff that I won that was kind of not really what I was supposed to go win mm-hmm. that I was that kind of I felt like 
set me apart a little bit. Were you doing any uh, PRS matches? Um, I've only shot a couple of PRS matches. I've shot mostly the sniper comps, but I'm going to be doing a lot more of those uh, next year with the new cross rifle from SIG. Nice. You And you... When you say sniper competitions, like the international, international sniper, use of sock, use of sock, uh, mammoth sniper mammoth, challenge. That's yeah. right. Yep. So, how have you been faring in those? Uh, when uh, I haven't shot them in a couple of years, but when I shot them with Tyler, we won. Or every time I shot them, I shot them with Tyler, and we won every one that we entered. And nice. then uh, I got out, or I was I was still in, but I met my wife Candace, mm-hmm. and she she's like, oh, I want to get into. Uh, I want to get into some long range shooting. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, there's this match called the the Mammoth Sniper Challenge because Tyler Tyler's like, <laughs> we're done. Like we've we've won it all these times. Like I got nothing left to prove. It just is, yeah. you know, it's a suck fest. I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm like, I respect that, you know, because yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's right. Yeah. It, it is. And um, I was like, well, there's this Mammoth Sniper Challenge. If you want to do that, and she's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of physical. Like you got to carry oh, all your stuff. Kinda. And, <laughs> yeah. And so so we get in there. I'm like, well, this will we'll figure this out real quick, you know. Yeah. And um. So literally we trained for like a couple of days. I mean, just a few days yeah. taught her how to, how to mill from scratch, stuff. from scratch. Yeah. She'd never yeah. shot a, a long range Whoa. rifle. And, uh, so we pack all our gear up to go to this thing, you know, and it's like 30 some miles of movement with yeah. all your equipment. So yeah. we were carrying it between the two of us. We had a hundred and, uh, 136 pounds of gear. Whoa. Uh, and so it was pretty rigorous and you have to maintain less than i think it was 18 minute miles yeah then so um how'd you guys fare we won shut up yeah we won yeah no really yeah we won so (laughs) so yeah she uh she was like i'm never doing this again it freaking sucked but she 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 did great and we ended up winning that competition so she went from literally no long-range rifle experience to like i showed her how to spot she's super fast she's really yeah. smart so she doesn't have a hard time learning anything yeah um and so yeah it was pretty it's, cool it's, man. is uh that was before you guys were married we just got married oh my yeah. gosh man oh yeah that's Trial awesome by fire on that one yeah dude that it is was out awesome. there snowing on us and miserable big and, suck fest oh, how many how many shooters competed in that there was i think there was like 60 teams but oh you know they're gosh, they're man. all like i mean it's all it's not, it's basically like the best in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I know it's my buddy, pro. you know, Neil Hudspeth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we call him little Neil, no. <laughs> <laughs> little Neil. Um, but he's competed in that and he's, he's won, uh, I think he won the use of sock with Terry, 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 a buddy of ours. Um, but you, you, so between all these competitions, is that a requirement now that you've segued into civilian life? Is, are you required? Um, I mean, not a requirement, but are you still competing on your own in these certain fields, or was that an AMU thing, and then you kind of hung up some of the things that were, were aren't a prior, priority to you personally? Um, here, I, I do. I just do – the way I pick my matches is how to best represent the brands that I represent. Yeah. So, you know, I went from representing the Army and that aspect, and now it's I represent, you know, six-hour and tier tactical and Timney triggers and uh, – a bank so like it's i go there and um uh, you know with with like timney triggers if they've got a new trigger that's coming out that's what they're looking to focus on I'll, i might go shoot a competition that kind of exploits that or mm-hmm. um with the bank of labor if they have an event you know i'll go and 
do a demo there or, or whatever I can do to help out. So that kind of dictates more what I'm doing nowadays. But yeah. if, if, if I go just for Dan Horner to shoot, I'm usually going to go do something that's outside my comfort zone because yeah. I, you know, I want to see how I can try to push your limits. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. Do you, where do you think you are competitively? I mean, is there a scale for the world's best shooters right now? Besides like, I mean, I'm assuming it's got to be three gun nation stats, USPSA stats, depending on what you look at. Yeah. Where are you at on that scale right now? Are you at the top? Yeah, I would, I would say I've, Got, I mean, in three gun, I would say that I've got a, you know, that's probably where I should be. Um, yeah. You know, and overall, like like I said, that the NRA World Championship thing, that's that to win that, that was pretty cool because, you know, that everybody was there, all the pro shooters were there. So when I won that, I felt like that was kind of like, all right, you know, I beat everybody at all the games. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't win every single specific little deal, but, but the culmination because cul- they had to do the same thing. Right. And, well. and it was all pickup guns. Yeah. So nobody had an equipment advantage. You just showed up and like, you know, you shot a Beretta silver pigeon. So go pick you one out for, for the, the flying portion. And you know, the three gun stage was bone stock, whoever sponsored that event. Hmm. So I was pretty, I felt like that kind of, there's no real advantage. It's hard to train for all those different disciplines. It was a real fair level playing field and you just did the best that you could do yeah it would talk to me about your transition out of military service now going into civilian life because 13 years for anybody in anything right is a long time and to build habits and now you're out there in civilian life doing things very differently i'm assuming than you're than you're used to um how has that been It, it was a big transition for me and i didn't really realize how indoctrinated Mm. I had become in the army, you know, like there are a lot of systems and TTPs and things like that, that I, I just fall into because that's what I've done. I've done for 13 years and they work, you know, like the way I organize a trip or the way I plan or the way that I send a report up or the way I do a lot of that stuff. I do it the same way because it's worked for me so far. And I learned it all in the military and it's really wild how, you know, if you go to a company, uh, you know, and you're like, you're a cashier at a company, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, at the grocery store, right? And you're the best cashier. All of a sudden you become the cashier manager mm-hmm. because you were the best cashier. There's no like leadership in the civilian world. There's no leadership schools. There's no development of people. It's like, well, you're the, you're the best at whatever this is. Now you're in charge of all the people that do whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And there's no like, people skill building there's no leadership training like you have in the army and uh and that was kind of something that really surprised me really because, yeah and it was it's kind of a strange you know for like guys like us because it's like you know oh, you you're gonna get promoted well we're gonna send you to a leadership school yeah to yeah. learn the, that new job and learn how to give you some more tools to interact with people and how to counsel people and how to have the hard conversations and all that stuff and um you know i'm super fortunate because uh, you know, SIG and Tier and Timmy, like they're all run by really good, strong leaders. But that's why I, one of the reasons I'm with those certain companies because uh, I, I didn't see that in other places. Yeah, it's 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 really weird too because life in civilian life specifically, nobody prepares you for higher duties and responsibilities no. to step up to initiative even. I right. mean, where you learn, if you're a civilian, you learn initiative, you probably learn it from your dad or your mom or your granddad right. or, or something like that, but you don't typically learn it OJT. And you had the opportunity through a myriad of experiences, a- including a, a non-commissioned officer to be able to do that. Right. 
Um, so now, what are the biggest challenges that you face in civilian life? What you know, the mm. competition was or stand at the top all the time yeah. in military life was probably the hardest thing there. But now you're a civilian, and you could and I wouldn't say you could afford to kind of like slack off, no. but your priorities are different, right? Well, so when I was in the military, you know, I had a boss like yeah. every day, you know, and that boss told me whether I could go and do or I couldn't go and do, and uh, like I'm very like I, I want to work you know i want to go and i want to help and i want to do something and i want to provide value so last year if there was white space and somebody called me and wanted to do something and there was there was two days on the calendar i would jump in there chopping and do it, it you up know? Yep. yeah uh-huh. and i got myself in a lot of not not a lot of trouble but it just took a huge toll on me yeah and my wife because i was gone so much like i was gone it was two it was exactly 240 days of travel. Mm-hmm. And it was just because I didn't have anybody saying, Hey man, you know, you need to slow down, learn how or, to say no, yeah, you yeah, need to say bit. no. Or like, Hey, you know, is it really that important? Do you need to, do you really need to go do whatever that is? So I'm learning, getting a little bit better at, you know, figuring out what is important and what, what will help people or what will help me and not just doing everything, you know, cause that was my mentality in the army. It was like, well, we got a slot for a school. Well, can I go? Yeah, sweet. Let's go. Yeah. You know, you're, hey, th- these guys need training. Well, whoever that is, send me. You know, yeah. I want to go do it. And um, now I'm out here and, and, you know, the other thing that I'm really trying to figure out is, you know, 10 years from now, what, what does right look like? Yeah. Because, you know, once you get out, like I always, I do a, a mental management class and I say, hey, you know, if I took two people, and I blindfolded you and told you to walk. You know, some people walk 200 yards, and some people will walk until they die. But if you don't know where you're going, you don't know if you'll ever get there. So for me, I've got to figure out, you know, where where am I even going to be in 10 years so I can start to work towards that. So is, I'm assuming marriage has changed a lot of things for you because now you ha- you're forced to have a work-life balance, right? Right, right. Before you know, in the military, you didn't really have that consideration because it's all about the job, right? The, the career field. In yeah. um, balancing that, are you are you prepared to to manage that process? Has it been difficult? Has it been easy? Yeah, it's I I find it super easy because my wife's awesome. Like she's she was a marine for five years, and then she was an, a nurse, and then she was an editor for Recoil magazine. Yeah. Then so she's in the gun world, and she's really good. I mean, she was number one or two ranked PRS ladies shooter last year. Yeah. Um, so she, and she understands like what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go and what I'm, you know, if I'm going to go teach some guys like, yeah, it's, it's great to do that, but it's, it's great to do it because they're deploying. They're going to go get in a gunfight. Like, you know, that's for greater good than just going to make a couple of bucks Yeah. teaching. Um, and she's really understanding about all that stuff. So, um, and she, we try to travel together as much as possible. Yeah, that's key, man. Um, so moving on into civilian life, how did it work for you? Did you get, were you like, you know, you're an NCO in the Army, you're building these relationships because you're going to shoot comps. I, I, I actually remember asking you the question, uh, maybe it was pain. I asked you guys, I was like, hey, man, how does it work when you shoot a competition while I was a member of the military and then you win? And then the prize table or in this case, like a cash prize versus you know, the, the standing, let's, let's address that first. In the military, how does that work? Like if you, if there's a $10,000 cash prize, do you get to keep the cash? Uh, 
it it ebbs, it changes. Yeah, you know, it, it sometimes like it's based on it's all it's political. Politics. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's like nothing else, or it's like everything else in the military. Like, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But yeah, when I was there, most of the time you did get to keep it, but you had to fill out a mountain paperwork. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. So then, then there there's companies prospecting for you, right? And then you get into this the latter part of your career where you guys even told me um, there was guys. Early companies early on that were trying to get you guys. Oh yeah, in the beginning well, of your careers, right? And it really, if you think about it, it, makes a lot of sense. You can't go to college and learn what we know. Yeah, you know, like yeah, I, yeah. I got an education at the Army Marksmanship Unit with the best shooters in the world, with the mm-hmm. best ballisticians in the world, with the best gunsmiths in the world. You can't go get that education anywhere else. So for mm-hmm. a company to have that, with that's the discipline, what the value, yeah, is, with the military right? ethic. That's what the yeah. yeah. That's the the value that the guys at the the AMU provide because it's a difficult like it's it's not useful to anybody that's not in the firearms industry because you you know you know a whole lot about something that doesn't affect those people's lives. But if you're in the firearms industry, like you can't buy that education or those experiences. Yeah. When you was it hard for you to make a decision on potentially which direction to go into? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. The, so. Um, on my team, you know, I, I had Max Michelle, Travis Tomasi, uh, Robbie Johnson, um, Casey Sabio, uh, and then that was kind of the first team that we had. So all those guys had left, and they're all they all went out to work for companies, and I stayed in touch with them because we were on a team together. And it's like yeah. you hear the pros and cons of certain things here and there, and uh, so those were the guys I was talking to when I was looking when I got the opportunity to get out. And the other side of it was I just kind of – I'd done everything that I could do at the AMU without just getting into groundhog year. Like, okay, we're going to go train these guys. We're going to shoot these competitions. And it was just seven yeah. more years of, of – I don't want to say no more growth. I could have still learned a lot. Yeah. But it was going to – I wasn't going to be learning and growing by the leaps that I had been used to up to that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to the point where it's like, well – I can keep doing this and I see what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to retire and then I'm going to go try to find a job or whatever, or I've got this awesome opportunity, which has no guarantee, but I could build it into something great if it goes right, you know? And so far I've been super fortunate to get around, you know, great guys. Like we're sitting here at tier tactical right now in Jason Beck's office. He talked to me for two and a half hours last night about stuff that like, you know, I, I would never be able to learn that stuff from anybody else except somebody like him who's super successful. Ron Cohen at SIG, John Veer, you know, all these guys, like, I get to talk to them, and, and most people, you know, see them in passing. They don't get a, a life lesson from a guy that runs a billion-dollar company. Yeah. You know, I'm super, super fortunate to be able to be in this position. When you, when you went with – you decided ultimately to go with SIG, uh, a lot of people don't. Um, maybe understand how businesses in the firearms industry operate, but there's a lot of special operations guys and military guys that work oh, yeah. for these organizations, <laughs> specifically SIG. Uh, Lindsay works there. Yep. Great dude. Um, we were laughing about that the other day because uh, Lindsay, worked, Robbie Johnson worked for Lindsay Bunch, and then I worked for Robbie Johnson, and it was just funny because like that's one of the main reasons that I went with SIG was you know I, I worked with Robbie for six years and uh, and he's you know, well-known in the firearms industry. And so it was Lindsey Bunch. And, um, you know, it was just, it was cool because we were thinking about it. Like, you know, if, if Lindsey hadn't stood up 
the sniper section, you know, Robbie wouldn't have worked for him. I wouldn't have worked for Robbie. Like none of us would be here right now. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just kind of cool to, it all came it together, all came together, you know, well, how, talk to us about SIG and what you guys got going on. See, I did a, you know, we were talking a little bit about YouTube and social media and stuff. And I did a video review and it's, it's in my wheelhouse, the challenges that I face with social media, which is people think that you do things because you're driven that direction or might be incentivized by money, et cetera. One of the things that we don't do is we don't do content based on a relationship, a paid relationship with a, co- a company specifically gotcha. uh, when it comes to reviews. Like I'm not going to review a piece of equipment uh, like Tier Tactical, for example. Right, right. We have a friendship and a relationship, business relationship with Tier Tactical. I'm not going to go and go, right. hey, this, this uh, carrier is the best carrier. Personally, I'll say that because I use it, but my company won't do that. And so when I said on for my company page on YouTube, I was like, this 320X carry is one of the best firearms out of the box I've ever shot. And it's true. Flat trigger, um, reciprocates really well, uh, doesn't have a hammer like the the P220 that I have. Uh, There's no decocker on it. It's single action. It's very efficient. Um, And then it's reasonably priced. And that review, we had some people that were like, oh, you know, that's blah, 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 blah. You know, all the stuff that trolls say in their basements. (laughs) Well, you now are a firearms expert, right? You're mm-hmm. the you're a, a, a trainer slash the best shooter in the world, and now you're working for Sig. Yeah. What specifically is it about Sig that that draws you to that? Because that had to be a hard decision. Yeah, right? it, it was. I got the, the opportunity to interview with a bunch of gun companies, and but I went there, and uh, Tom Taylor, the the CMO at Sig, was like, "Hey, you need to come up here and." And I was kind of hesitant to go with SIG because it's a one-stop shop, right? Like, there's no, I'm putting all my eggs in one oh, basket. Oh, yeah, I didn't me, even thought about right? that. Yeah, so they like, do everything. Right. So before, like, I could have, without SIG, I would go with a pistol company, a rifle company, an optics company. Yeah. And if there was ever, a, you know, like, somebody has, has a down year, it's like, hey, you know, we can't invest in this anymore. And I lose a sponsor. I've still got the rest of them. So yeah. I don't, you know, go down. And so it was kind of scary to jump in on one Spawn, you know, one company that does it all. And what sold me on it was uh, I got a chance to go meet with Mr. Cohen, the CEO, and I asked him, you know, how did you take this company from, you know, a couple of pistols and one rifle that, you know, wasn't doing very well yeah. to what it is today? And he's like, well, I hired the best people in the world and I let them do their job. Mm, I was like, I like that. That's, I'm like, what else can you ask for, right? A yeah. boss that, that respects what you've done and, you know, sees your value and then allows you to, to do what you're good at. That's simple. So, yeah, and, and that meant a lot to me. And then, obviously, the relationships with Robbie and Lindsay and yeah. everything. But, um, uh, yeah, it was that's how I ended up there was truthfully just that that one statement that he made. I'm like, if that if that's the guy that's, you know, captain in the ship and, and all he wants me to do is d- do what I'm – be the best at what I do and then go do that, yeah. I can I can work for that guy. That's awesome. And also he told me that, uh, that he knows everything that – that he knows and so he needs to know what i know so if i'm in there and uh you know i agree with everything that he says then uh i'm not of any use for him so oh nice if, if, if i disagree with something i better stand up and yeah and say something because you know he already knows what he thinks yeah and yeah. uh i had a lot of respect for that too because you don't have very many ceos of major businesses coming in there and saying hey you know i'm paying you to disagree with me yeah and, sh- and tell me what i don't see yeah, so. but that's how the best businesses grow to what they are now. Oh, exactly. How did, you know, SIG just picked up the uh, Army, not just, but they, they have the Army contract for the pistol. Uh, we actually consider it as a company to teaching 
uh, like we're teaching Fourth Infantry Division next or next week, uh, driving there tomorrow morning actually, and they're going to be going to those pistols. So mm-hmm. it's advantageous for us to start understanding and working with those pistols. What are your favorite Sig pistols and why? Uh, I shoot that three twenty, and three, this is yeah. this is one thing. So I shoot the X five, the Legion version with the tungsten grip for competitions. But one thing that I didn't really appreciate until recently is, you know, when you get into the engineering side of the house, they start talking about features, 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 features. They beat up features, which I didn't understand or appreciate. But when you really start looking at it, I got I got an understanding now. When you go spend money at a gun store, right, you're, you're purchasing a feature set. So if you've got a pistol that, that does what a pistol does, which is, you know, but everything's a feature, the amount of rounds that it has, the location of the magwell or the, the magazine release, is it ambidextrous? You know, that's a feature. The trigger pull is a feature. The sights are a feature. The reason I like the 320 is because you get more features, you get more value for your money. So I can mm. take that $400, $500 gun, you know, and put a different magwell on it. I can put a different grip on it. It's built to be modular, which is features that I care about. So when I spend that money, I get more with that gun than I do with other guns. And that, and that 320 series has the carry, the compact, the the full size 320. I mean, we've got a VTAC, we've got the the Legion series. There's a there's a ton of stuff, and it's all interchangeable. It's all based around that trigger cassette that you can one pin out of the side of the gun. You can take the whole trigger pack out and change grips, change slides, do whatever you want to do. That, that's so, okay, so this is recently some guys like, Hey man, I, I saw you're using a, a carry, which I have in my, in my EDC right now. Um, the 320 X carry. And he's like, Hey, I want, I want to do your grips for you. And, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool, man. Tell me how I need to get my gun to you. And he goes, no, no, no. I'm going to send you a set or whatever the grip yeah. thing is. And I'm like, what? And then he sends me a picture and it's the whole frame. Right. And, it, and yeah. he's, I'm like, you're going to send me a whole frame? And he's like, yeah, that's just how it works. You, I'm going to grip, do your entire grip, because you could buy it yeah. separate, and then I'm going to send it to you. Yeah. I was like, uh, okay. Sweet. It, it, so yeah. it's, it's, it's almost made to be, like you said, modular in yeah. every way. It's like, an, it's like the AR-15 of pistols. You yeah. Know, if you, I, my gun that I shoot in competition is also the gun that I carry if I want a high-capacity carry pistol. So I take the trigger pack out, and I put it in the smaller grip module yeah. and put the smaller slide on there and take that gun. Cause I know that that the internals are solid cause it's what I use for my competition gun. That's so, so awesome. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And when I go and teach the military's uh, transitioning over to red dots yeah. on their pistols. So I don't, I just have a red dot slide and a, a iron sight slide. So basically yeah. it's like uppers and on your rifle. I've got an optics upper and an iron sight upper and just swap and them just, up swap them out keep rocking um what is your so in the this year this fiscal year you got a lot of things going on with sig is there anything of note is there significant things that are happening um so we've got a, we've got some pretty cool stuff as far as uh we run the sig relentless warrior championship which is a um all the academies like vmi uh the um citadel, West Point, citadel yeah. all those guys come together for a big competition and they get to go through the factory and see oh, some cool. pretty cool stuff. And then they we run a, a big comp for them. Uh, we do some Camp Legion, which is really cool. Like it, we saw it last year, and I'm like, man, I would pay to go do this. It's a flat fee. Your hotel, your food, everything's provided, but you get to go through the entire Sig factory. 
Uh, you get to go meet Ron Cohen in his office. You get to see, Dang. you know, all this stuff, how it's made. And then you get uh, two days of lessons at the academy, but it's like, it's like uh, circuit training. So you'll go over here and you'll shoot concealed carry guns for a while. And then you'll go over here, you'll shoot full size. Then you'll go what? shoot rifle. Yeah. And it's, it's just a fun couple of days yeah. and it's all like super top level. All the food's catered. Like you guys have a, you guys have a, the SIG Academy, right? Is it the yeah. training Academy? Yep. It, where does that, where's that at? And, and is it's that in still Exeter, New Hampshire? And that's still happening. Oh yeah. They, they're running classes literally every day. Really? It's wild. Yeah. See, I always thought, man, that, that, Sig was smart to do that because a lot of companies kind of do that in reverse. They maybe horse before the cart or whatever you want to put it. They they develop a company, a following, and they don't do training. And no. it's like you have all this advantage because you have the equipment. Plus, you have clients who are going to tell you the T and E R and D of things right. that work at versus don't work. And that's and, how it goes. Yeah. The the engineers develop stuff. Like okay, we get it to final form, send it over to the academy, let them shoot it. Wow. Because they're shooting every day. Yeah. And so if there's a problem, it comes back before it even goes to like the, the big endurance tests. Usually sometimes it goes the other way, but you know, those guys see it and run it and run it and run it and then come back and give feedback. Yeah. And it's all very open. Everybody's opinion matters. You know, if you've got something, stand up and say it. That's so awesome. So, man. Who yeah. is, who are the sponsor shooters right now for SIG? Uh, myself, Max Michelle and Lena Mitchell. Really? Yep. Lena's a, Lena's a SIG? Yep. I was, Talking to her the other day, she's getting her uh, PCC guns uh, built up this week. That's so awesome, man! Yeah. How's Max doing? He's doing. Oh, doing he's doing well. great. Yeah, he's. I think he's undefeated with his uh, carry optics gun still. So he's really? crushing it. He's shooting a, a Legion X5 with a Romeo 3 Max on yeah. it for carry optics. Are you Are you competing in USPSA this this year? No, I'm going to be with. So one of the big things that's going on this year is the new bolt gun came out. Yeah. So that's a huge push. So I'm going to be taking that and uh, competing with that in uh, PRS. And then also, there's that's a hunting rifle. So we're going to take that thing out and, and do some hunts and kind of proof the concept. We did a big hunt last October in the backwoods so of Colorado. So you get to hunt as part of this whole deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good deal, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. so awesome. Yeah, we... Uh, we they so in 16 months they that thing went from computer drawings to we were in the woods hunting with it wow and uh new the new fury caliber with the three-piece case design we took it out there and yeah um again back to the features like that gun has a 16 inch barrel with the buttstock folded it's uh less than 25 inches it weighs about 6.3 pounds wow i mean it's and it's basically a uh all the the advantages of like a M2010 sniper rifle. Yeah. Just extremely lightweight. Yeah. And um so we made cuz we were looking around like these the hunters haven't had an advancement. You know, they're still using a Remington 700. Yeah. And you know, you look at what snipers and competitive shooters have, man, you can they're so much better. Yeah. So we looked at them and we're like, "Well, let's build let's take all these lessons we've learned the last 20 years and put them in a hunting rifle." And so back to the features, you get interchangeable barrel, folding buttstock, match like match cheek adjustment, length of pull, uh, adjustable two stage trigger, match grade barrel, all that stuff for fifteen hundred bucks. What? Yeah. What's so it? What's this called? The cross rifle. From okay, Sig. Kevin Owens was telling me yeah. about it. He was excited about it it's, as well. It's pretty cool. So how many? What? What are the inter? You could interchange between calibers, but what calibers are you gonna shoot? shoot so in? we've got uh the they come from the factory with uh six five Creedmoor three hundred eight or two seventy seven Sig Fury. For PRS, I'll probably shoot six Creedmoor. 
I'll get it. Wow. So instead of shooting a little lightweight 16-inch barrel, I'll probably get a big, like, 24, 26-inch, six-creed barrel yeah. made. And you could swap. You could, it's a barrel swap. Yeah, it's just a barrel nut. So you take two Allen wrenches out, yep. pull the pull the uh, handguard off, yep. and it's just an AR-15 barrel nut. You swap just the pop bolt. it off. And well, it's still 308 case head, so you know. Oh, Allen, you yeah, yeah. That. Between yeah. six five and the, the, you said two seventy seven. Yeah, so that's what the the Department of Defense is looking at. So they wanted a six point eight by fifty one, basically, is what it is. Yeah. And so, but the the trick thing about that is, uh, it's able to to hold eighty thousand psi uh, extremely safely. So yeah. if you think about like a forty five and a three hundred wind mag, right? 300 wind mag is much more powerful. Yeah. 45 shooting at like 25,000 PSI. Yeah. And with 300 wind mags at like 60,000 PSI. So it's about a 30,000 PSI gain. Yeah. We're, we're doing that gain again. Uh, you know, going up to those ultra high pressures. Insane. So it's going to be, it's going to change. It's literally going to change rifle shooting. I tell everybody it's like the difference from black powder to smokeless powder. Wow. You know, I'm really, I think you're going to see some like 1BC bullets. Wow. Because you're going to be able to have high pressure. So you could run, you might be able to run a 175 grain 6.5 bullet, you know, if we can get the rifle twists figured out. Is that because of the way the chamber's locking or is it like material? Or is that it's a material still, change? So it's a material change. The Basically, the bottom 3 eighths inch of the case is made out of stainless steel. Oh, so there's nice. no there's no more. And it's just, but it's just a normal standard primer. Yeah. Uh, but the way that we're making them, you know, a lot of people use Lapua brass as that's kind of like the standard for high, high-end, long-range rifle brass. So you weigh those cases and you see the, the variance and you get rid of the stuff. That's the extreme highs and extreme lows. Well, the way we're making this case is it's a, it's a cold for uh, cold stamped um, stainless steel head. And then it's a brass tube extrusion. Yeah. So the variance between cases is basically n- nothing. It, they're perfect between wow. each other. Yeah. Uh, so they, they're as accurate as a casing can be, and they're like significantly more stronger. Wow. So you're going to see consistency between between rounds. Super consistent, yeah. The, That's amazing. Yeah. Man. When's that come out? It's out, well, it's it'll be out for commercial mid-summer, mid-late summer. Yeah. Um, but we went with the the two seventy seven because that's what the army wanted. Yeah. Um, but Future Fury will be available in you know yeah. more stuff. What What's your favorite glass right now for a long gun? Um, I'm using the um, five to thirty on the Sig five to thirty. Okay. Um, so it's it's doing well for me so far, and I use the Tango six one to six uh, on my three gun rifle. One to six. Yeah. Well, the, the coolest optic thing though that we've got right now is a set of range finding binoculars, mm-hmm. and they man, I was hitting stuff at forty eight hundred with them. Really? Yeah. Dang. Yeah, and then it's got applied ballistics in it, so yeah. you hit it and it tells you your hold. That's so, so awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The AB thing, man, I love yeah. that. Um, what about for uh, carry optics or uh, just a red dot on a pistol? What are you using? So I use the any of the Romeo series. That is one thing I've been trying to, to tell people. A lot of people come up and they're like, hey, man, you know, should I put a red dot on my pistol? I tell everybody I've never seen a piece of equipment improve a shooter as much as putting a red dot on a pistol. Really? It's absolutely really? wild. Yeah. I mean, it, your pistol class is basically put the red dot on target, pull the trigger without moving it. And then all of a sudden, everybody can hit anything. Yeah. You know, it used to take me a day 
or more to take somebody who had never really shot a pistol and get them to where they could hit an eight inch plate at 20 yards. Yeah. I can hand them any pistol with a red dot and they can hit that plate because yeah. it's, I mean, it's literally like call of duty, put it on there, pull the trigger. Yeah. It's a POV perspective. Right. What, what is the, um, are you right-handed, right-eye right. dominant? Yep. I, somebody asked me the question. I'll just ask you maybe because, because maybe you have better context and understanding of it. I'm right-handed, left-eye dominant. And what I tell people is, because um, a lot of people tilt their heads off to the side when they're trying to acquire it, or they do some weird hilt, uh, head tilt yeah. instead of pushing the gun out over their left eye. I can't remember what shooter it is. Maybe it was Jarrett. One of the guys who was right-handed, left-eyed. Yep. It was Dave. Yep. It was actually Dave. Dave came to us and trained us, and I asked him about it. And he said he just pushes it out over his left eye, yep. and he's trained to do that. Is it is it is that easy to do? Because people are asking me, like, well, people, range people are telling me I need to switch hands. And with to a learn pistol, how to shoot. I would 100% not switch hands. I would just yeah. push it over in front of that, the dominant eye. It, on the draw, I would come out directly yep. under the dominant eye and drive it to the target. Yeah. But the rifle's the harder one. Yeah. The rifle ones, it takes, it's more of a personal choice of, you know, do I put some scotch tape or something over my glasses yep. or is know, that your technique you that or chapstick works really well you taught you taught me i in fact i know i quote you a couple of times you taught me that years ago really and good. i tell people to do the scotch tape thing yeah it to, works really yeah. well you yeah. can still see good enough yeah and and generally with a rifle you're looking through the top third of the the lens so you can put either scotch tape or a little bit of chapstick up there just to obscure just to obscure at that exact angle and then you can still you've still got your normal vision the rest of the time yeah so when you mount that rifle you know you kind of tilt your head down and you can put that scotch tape right in the way or that uh chapstick right in the way of that dominant eye which is your left eye or switch hands but yeah like i my left hand is completely useless <laughs> yeah i couldn't imagine having to do having to do that me either um yeah i just push it up like a pistol right underneath my left eye and i drive it up and extend it and it has never been a problem but it's weird because i even remember in sephardic dudes like instructors you know bless them because they're good dudes telling guys that had just showed up to switch as we're training oh wow and i'm like what they want yeah. you to switch like now like he said it's it's just more advantageous. I'm like, dude, do not do that. Uh-uh. Um, and do that. I've never seen it as a huge significant issue. And I've noted a few of them, including Dave, who are cross-eyed dominant, and it hasn't been an issue for them. No, it's not a problem. The one thing is, to you're talking about head tilt and all that other stuff, yeah. it's really important to keep your head straight up and down, in my opinion. Like, just stand up, turn your head sideways, and start walking around a room. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. It, it throws everything off. Yeah, what I tell people is, especially when we go prone, they try to do weird stuff. Like they'll take their head and they'll put it on their arm and they'll get like a weird yeah. angle and it throws everything off. And yeah. I'm like, just shoot and replicate the heads up display that you would have standing. Do that in every alternate position. And as close as you can get to that, the more efficient you'll be as opposed to yeah. trying to chain something yeah, I up. I see it a lot with uh, strong hand and weak hand shooting too, guys. Yeah. You know, you shoot two hands normally. They drive the gun out with the strong hand. Now they've got the thing cocked at a 45 degree angle. Your brain has how many thousands of repetitions of seeing a sight picture yeah. that's straight up and down, and now you're going to can it off to the side, yeah. and it, it does nothing but Under stress you. as yeah. well. Um, why do you think, I'm curious to know if you know why, I'm, I've always been curious about you because 
you were a military guy when I worked with you, and you were training us, and you're good. Tra- you were a good trainer. All your guys, Payne, uh, Sweeney, all you guys. I've talked to Sweeney too recently. Uh, all you guys were good trainers and real professional, and taught us a lot of things that we didn't know. Um, you know, from the practical side to the tactical side. But you seem to be just a notch above everybody else. You're young, and you're still young, and you have a long future ahead of you in competitive shooting, but you've kind of seen yourself evolve since you were a child. What's different in skill sets between you physically and mentally? Is there is there something that's that you have noted as being different? Me versus other people? Yeah, like the ability maybe to acquire, like acquisition, process information, cognition. What do you think it is? My, I, like this is all I do. Literally, like from yeah. the time I wake up in the morning till the time I go to bed, I do something with guns, and I've done it since I was twelve. Literally, yeah. And so the army actually did a study on me and a couple other guys uh, on why we were such good shooters. So we had this guy; he he was a double PhD, and we we're up there doing run all these tests, all these scanners, and finally he comes up to me and he asks me, he's like, "Well, what what is it that you think sets you apart? What makes you different?" And I was like, "Man, I'm like." There are a couple of things I feel like maybe, but truthfully, if you handed a 12-year-old a welding set and he welded six to eight hours a day every day for 22 years, he'd be able to weld bubble gum together. Yeah. You know, like there's no substitute for experience. And and one thing that I struggle with is sometimes I'll I'll tell people like, hey, you know, this is this is what I would do. And, you know, they they don't do it. And that's understandable. Everybody's different. But sometimes I'm like, man, like if you knew what I went through and the hours I dedicated to be able to give you that very simple answer, you know, yeah. you would, <laughs> you would do it that way. And yeah. then eventually they always, you know, not always, but generally speaking, the vast majority of the time they come back and finally do it the way that we talked about. Yeah. It's that whole, it's a Malcolm Gladwell outliers thing. Exactly. You know, where it's just like, if you have 10,000 hours, which is a cumulative of about 10 years of experience, What's separating you from everybody else isn't necessarily a gift, even though you might have natural gifts that is a little bit better than everybody else. It's just the time put in. 100% it's the time. And my gift is the fact that I had really good parents that supported this and taught me to be disciplined and taught me to never quit and taught me to, you know, always find a yes, you know, mm-hmm. and to not settle for anything except success. That That's the gift. What did the double PhD determine uh, at the end of it <laughs> that all his sensors worked really that's i mean that's that, it. you know when it done it spit out a bunch of numbers and a bunch of data yeah but but they didn't they didn't they come to a conclusion it. yeah no, you can't i mean so you can measure my muscular movements and my reaction times and all that stuff but it's it's not it's mental everything you know the I always, I, I, like I said, I do a mental management class. I think it's the most important thing that I can help somebody with. What, what mental are, this mental uh, management class, what do you do? Who, you, who do you do it for? So far, I've basically only done it for extremely high level soldiers. Yeah. Um, I've only, I've, I've showed it to maybe a dozen civilians in my really? life because it's, to me, it's the most powerful thing. And before I bring it out to the civilian world, I want to make sure it's completely vetted and i think it is now but well, basically use us to bring that out to the, <laughs> the world that, yeah that would be we, can, cool. we can make yeah, it happen we'll make a class but you know you ask somebody like hey what percentage of what you do is mental 
and what what would you say when you were in the military? What percentage of what you did was mental versus physical? Uh, maybe seventy thirty. Yeah, that's mostly mental. Most people would say between seventy and eighty five percent. And if you know that seventy percent of your success comes from the mental aspect, how much of your time and resources leveraged yeah, yeah. to develop in that part of you? Yeah. And most of us would say none. The complete opposite, maybe. Right? Maybe. Or, yeah. Yeah. If I lucky. mean, if you really think back to your training, yeah. did you spend thirty percent of your time? working on the mental capacity of what you're doing yeah. or did you it was it like we're just going to drill this until we get it right yeah physically drilling something. physically drill something yeah. yeah so um the mental management stuff is huge and that was what i was trying to get across to those guys and the, the test was like man i can i can get on that whiteboard and i can tell you how to make a good shooter what to look for how to test them how to develop them yeah you know it's you, you're not gonna in my opinion you're not gonna figure it out with some sensors and some yeah, testing, especially with the culmination of experiences of seeing what what's right, what works versus right. what doesn't, right. and then you, you can't. That I mean, that's just number one. It's priceless. But what what would you think if you had to identify your weaknesses? What what are your weaknesses? What do you? Is there something that it happens and you're like, damn it, it there 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 it is again? Is there is there one of those niches? I would say overextending for yeah. sure. Overextending the gun? Me. No, overextending Oh, myself. overextending yourself. Yeah. Like, you Ooh. know, I get, you know, like, oh, I can make that trip. Okay, I'm going to fly. You know, I can't tell you last year how many times I flew overnight. I would take a red eye from one thing to the next thing. Yeah. You know, at significant detriment to me and my family. You yeah. Know, I, I thought I was doing the right thing, but... That's my biggest problem. Is how that. are you going to get better at that? Just saying, just saying. Hey, man, no, we, we got to. I got to learn how to say no. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, I'm man. I'm not good, man. I'm not oh, either, really? man. I'm not good at it at all. And it 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 has like we just did all the stuff with BCM this whole week. Uh, the, the opportunity came up with you. I'm not going to turn that down. Then tomorrow, but you know, between everything relationship wise and work wise, then we leave tomorrow morning. It, it's hard for me, and maybe it's just a grind. Maybe yeah. I make excuses sometimes, but now I know like I have to grind, and there's a requirement early on. Mm -hmm. But hopefully, that leads to a maybe a brighter day where it's like now you can relax because you've grinded. Yeah. Um, but I get what you mean. It's like the balance trying well, to figure out the balance. And I think that people, successful people, you, you look at look at how many people are grow a business to multi million dollar business and then they sell it. And two years later, they're building another business. Yeah. They don't need to work. Yeah. You know? But yeah. it's just like, what else am I going to do? Yeah, you know, it's the since process. I've been 12 years old. I've worked every day. Yeah. You know, so that is normal for me, and that's what I enjoy because that's what's gotten me here, I guess. But, you know, the thought of not having to work or not being able to work, like, gives me anxiety. I, yeah. And you can ask my wife, if I'm at home, you got about 30 minutes that I can sit down. <laughs> like after that, like let's take the dogs out for a walk or something like yeah. do something because I literally get significant anxiety just sitting there. Do you, are you compulsive about, about shooting about, I mean, there, there probably was a period of time where you were compulsive about it because you 100%. had to get the reps and you just yeah. did it. But do you have a compulsive personality where you, where you have to be doing something all the time or yeah. can't, can you, when you deliberately time it out, can you, can you take downtime or no, do you have to be no. involved? It drives me nuts. Really? Like going and you can't watch TV then no, like or I, a movie. You go, yeah. I mean like in the evenings I've kind of gotten better at it. Like I can sit down and I can watch a movie or hang out. But like my wife loves to sit there and watch something on Netflix. So I finally gotten to the point where I can do that. Like if I'm at home I, and I justify <laughs> it by being like, well, I worked 
you know, the last three weeks and I was gone, I was working hard. I can watch one so episode now I can of sit Dexter. Here and we can watch, you know, Dexter for three hours and that's, that's fine. No, nobody's going to fire me for that. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's bad. It's, uh, definitely something that I need to literally need to get better at. Yeah. But it's a, I mean, it's a, like you said, it's a characteristic of successful people. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't be in the position that you are, which is the, I, when people ask me, um, you know, a 20 year special operations sergeant major, Hey, who's the best shooter in the world? It's you. Cause I've competed against you, but I also know your work ethic personally as a, as a young NCO, um, growing it up into, you know, the best shooter in the world. And uh, I've, I don't think I've ever seen you lose. I mean, do you remember the last time you lost? I lost a match last year. What, who, what was, was that? What was that, what was that um, circumstance? I, uh, there was, I, I basically, I didn't have, there was a whole lot of long range shotgun slugs. Yeah. And my, I was not very good. My, my equipment was not very good. Yeah. For that, and uh, I ended up losing that match. Since then, I fixed that. That yeah. would never be a problem. Does that does that <laughs> does that drive you mad? Though? Oh, it drives me insane. The uh, it, it's not. It has nothing to do with, um, back to the mental management, right? So, like, part of my mental management class talks about uh, perceived skill versus actual skill. Yeah. And there's a mathematical way to success. There's a way to establish your goal, backwards plan, establish your process goals to reach the product goal. You know, and I can do that. I can go out there and plan out exactly how I'm going to win a match. Yeah. And so I go, and I did that for that competition. And in the end of at the end of the mental management class, I talk about like for champions, it feels way way better, or way way worse to lose than it feels good to win because yeah. the winning is just the result of the process. Yeah. So I know what skills I need. It's confirmation of what right. you expect out of yourself. So I, I, I know what skills I need at what level to go win a competition. So I go and I train those skills to that level. And then I go and I prepare myself and my equipment and the, set the conditions. And then I go execute the skills that I've trained and I win the match. And it sounds simple. It's very difficult and it takes a lot of time. But it's, it, it's, it's, that's the process. So yeah. when I go there and I lose... It's like, man, like I screwed something up so bad. Like I had this figured out. It's worked all these times. You know, what did I do wrong? Okay, well, now I sit down, I write it down. I figure out exactly what the problem was. And then I write down the solution and I go execute the solution. That way, uh, that will never happen. Again. So you find the chink in the process, the little, the thing yeah. that was out of, out of sync. Right. And you go back and you address that specific, specific. thing. Because yeah. your process is confirmed or validated every time you win. Right. Because you're like, that process worked because that resulted in a win. Right. When you lose, you have to look back and that's, you Figure know, out we, what the issue was. in special yeah. operations, you know, you know about this because uh, Lindsay's uh, background, the hot wash. It's like, right. it's like, we're not going to talk about how great we were because great as an expectation, yep. we're going to talk about what we did wrong and how we improved that right. moving forward. And honestly and openly. Not, honestly not, and openly. Not like yeah. a, a picking on anybody way, but it's like, you know, this is, this is actually what happened. Yeah. Yep. And it's, huh. yeah, it's really like, you know, find, fix, finish, like yeah. that whole process. That's exactly, you know, I identify the problem. I fix it. I, I say, this is, this is how I'm going to attack it. And this is how I'm going to influence it. And then I go do it. Mm. And then, you know, normal stuff. It, let's, let Analyze. me give you the, let me ask you this. If you're a practical, if you want to get into shooting and you don't have the ammo, you have the gun and you have the time. I remember, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they, they said some, 
I, I'm, it's not that I'm not a big fan of dry firing. I just think there's a whole bunch of things that in the process of practical shooting that you could work on. I'm curious to hear what your take on the what the dry fire would be. Not specifically dry firing, but what would you work on or recommend for a new shooter to work on without the ammo, without the range? So if you really think about it, the only thing that you can't train dry firing is middle ma- or uh, recoil management. Mm. That's the only thing that you cannot train dry fire. Mm. So, um, but when I dry fire, I, you know, practice makes permanent. Yeah. You know? So when I go to the range, if I'm having a good day, I keep shooting. If I'm having a bad day, I go home. I might only shoot 20 rounds and be like, you know what? Not feeling it. Yeah. And I head out. Yeah. Cause you don't want to build bad. Right. You're practicing yeah. and you're making permanent. So if I'm, you know, practicing sucking, that's bad. So I need to not do that. Yeah. Um, but when you're dry firing, there's no time limits. There's none of that. You're not, I dry fire at literally 20% speed, but it is absolutely perfect every single time. Talk to me through a, a dry fire session with you. Are you so, taking it from the draw, yep. working manipulation? Yep. Are perfect you racking the slide each time yes. and then resetting? Resetting the trigger. So normally my dry fire would be, I would start just a normal standing position, pick something out to aim at, right? Like light switch or whatever. And then I'm going to draw super slow, perfect grip, perfect side alignment, perfect trigger press, rack slide, reholster, do it again, super slow. Uh, then I'm going to practice getting to that position. So I've got to build the base. So I'll take a couple of steps away, take a couple of steps into position, same perfect draw, click. Slower speed still. Still slower. Everything's yep. slow because there's no advantage to you on fast. Fast yeah. is just, you know, efficiency is just economy emotion so yeah as, as long if my brain only knows one way of doing something that's what it's going to do when you when we tell it to go fast yeah so my job when i'm dry firing is to make sure that my brain knows exactly what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. and you don't if you go really slow you feel things and you notice things that you never would feel or notice when you're going fast yeah so same thing on a reload like I would I would do all that movement stuff and then I would work on reloads. So I mean, my reloads would probably take six seconds when I'm dry firing yeah. because they're going to be absolutely perfect every single time. Wow. So uh, you're so when you say dry fire, we're you're, we're not talking about trigger manip- manipulation. We're talking about the whole sequence of events right. outside of managing recoil. Right. Everything except the gun going off, I can dry fire. Yeah. What about uh, how do you dry fire alignment? Which is, and this is how we uh, line out alignment. But I'm talking about like you're acquiring a target and you're seeing the target, and then you have the overlay of the background of the sights uh, in your field of view. But you have target focus on on close targets, for example. So every so if you think about long range shooting, if I do everything exactly the same, the bullet goes in the same spot, right? Yeah. That that translates. That's exactly how you should look at your pistol shooting. If you, if your grip is not exactly the same every single time, that gun's not pointing in the exact same spot every single time. The reason I dry fire so slow and the grip's perfect every time, it's not, it's it's strictly to make sure that that gun's pointing exactly where I'm looking. Mm-hmm. So if I'm within ten yards, I don't need to see the sights. Yeah. I can I can almost hit a bullet hole out to ten yards without using the sights. Yeah, because so, you're because you practice the the alignment process and the so indexing of the, the gun indexing. in the same spot. Yep. Yeah. So I teach six points of contact on the grip. So and they flow from the draw all the way out to the target line. So I go one, two, three, four, five, six, the gun's all the way extended, fire. 
And when I'm dry firing, all I'm doing is reinforcing that I get the exact same grip every time. It's the pistol sitting in my hand perfectly every time. That way, I don't. The sights are just confirming that the gun's pointed where I think it's pointed. Yeah. I'm not aiming the gun like most people think about aiming a pistol. Yeah. I look at the target. I get that flash side picture, and I pull the trigger. And that gun goes exactly where I'm looking. When do you change your depth of field or your focus to the front sight? Pretty much anything. Anytime you're shooting at an 8-inch piece of steel, because yep. you're going to be shooting past 10 yards. Yep. And it's small enough that you need to see something. Mm -hmm. um, and then on paper... You know, that t 10 to 12 yards, I'm going to start seeing, really seeing some sights. Yeah. Up close, if you've got time, obviously. Yeah, if you're driving into the target or you're like you're yeah. behind your gun as it's presented. But what I'm up close, what I'm seeing and, and thinking is, you know, I'm, I, I get a hard focus. So a soft focus is I see the target. Yeah. A hard focus is I notice something on the target. So I get a hard focus and I'm going to shoot as soon as it feels right. And when I see the sights, they're more just confirming that the gun was pointing where I was supposed to. Yeah. And if they're not, I can make a super fast pickup shot. But I'm not going to wait on a traditional shot process up close. I'm not going to go, you know, sights, trigger every single time. The gun's yeah. just going to go off, and it should be pointed where I'm looking. The other thing that people get wrapped up in a lot is trigger control and trigger manipulation. You, you can not pull a trigger poorly enough to affect a shot inside of 10 yards yeah you know i've, I've robbie taught me that yeah I've, I've taken a two by a one by two and stuck it in the trigger guard and said yep. hit the trigger you know yep. and i can still hit a headshot out to 10 yards yeah. so a lot of then another big misconception is guys do um uh they start shooting low left and they go and they do like ball and dummy drill to to eliminate that flinch i will flinch that gun like into the ground if my gun doesn't go off yeah. The difference is I flinch after the bullet leaves. Yeah. So if you're if you're out there and you're shooting low left now now two types of people right one group is the guy that occasionally goes out to the range. If you occasionally go out to the range, you're going to have to learn how to shoot without flinching because you don't do it enough yep. to develop the proper habit. Then you've got the other guy that shoots regularly, you know, at least two to three times a month. I would say would be a regular shooter. So you need to be going to fall into that category, that's the minimum that you would need to be doing. If you start shooting low left, it's a timing issue. So you're firing the gun and you're flinching to manage that recoil. Mm. And what you're doing is you're, you're flinching before the bullet, before you actually fire the gun. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've went and worked teaching a lot of these classes and guys will start off and they're going low left, low left, low left. I'm like, just keep shooting, just keep shooting. Yeah. I'm like, just get some bullets downrange. And all of a sudden that problem starts fixing itself because your brain's starting to get back in time with that pistol yeah. where it's like, I pull the trigger, the gun goes off, and then I manage that recoil, yep. not manage recoil, then fire the gun. Uh, uh, and it's, it's wild because when guys do that ball and dummy drill, if oh, they're yeah. experienced shooters, it's it's the worst thing that you can do because it's it's forcing the time, it's making the timing issue significantly worse. Uh, so that's that's a really good pro tip. It, what about what about when you shoot a red dot? Are you seeing um, a target in focus with an yeah. overlay in the background of your vision? Yeah, that that's the great thing about red dots, in my opinion, is I can like one hundred percent target focus. Yeah. So you're target focused the whole time. You're whole never time. transitioning your field of view. Nope. Which never. will take a lot of time. And truthfully, I'm doing that with iron sights yeah. 99% of the time. Yeah. That's why I, I, when I teach classes, I always tell, because you guys have, we talked about this before. I, I, I 
I, I don't, we should have done a podcast 10 years ago because I asked you a lot of questions because I was real curious about it. You know, me and me and Kevin Owens um, grew up shooting IDPA and IPSC and everything else. And I was real curious on how your eyes were working in the process. And when you talk to SF guys, even, it's like they don't know. They, they, yeah. They're just figuring it out just like everybody 100%. else. But one of the things I real, started realizing is uh, the difference between an intermediate and a professional shooter is their ability to index on target and get a 99.9% solution because right. of the reps they've invested in. So, uh, yeah, and, and I start every class off when I'm teaching guys. I'm like, I've shot over a million bullets. I've shot like four or five good shots, but I've shot a bunch of good enough ones. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And so, I'll, and we're here to learn about good enough shots. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't need a pinwheel A zone shot. You know, yep. I need an A zone shot. That's it. Are you? Do you ever look over your sights and see the bullets as a registration or confirmation of where your rounds are? Or are you tracking it through what the actual sights are doing in your in your field of view? Most of the time, it's it's based off the sights, but low light. That's when I'll start looking for bullet holes. Yeah, yeah. And but one thing, teaching like soldiers or or personal defense. Um, you're you have to be a hundred percent target focused. You have to see what that guy has in his hands. Yes. You can't be looking at the sights and going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Yes. Because yeah. if he puts that knife down, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. So that's why you have to learn how to index that gun. And you have to and for most people in those extremely high stress situations, they don't have the 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 dexterity for that fine motor skill with that high level of stress to go back and forth from the sights. One hundred percent. So you got to learn how to index the gun and have that thing pointed right where you're looking. Why, why? I know partly the culture of why this has become a problem, but it's we used to call it point shooting, reflexive right. shooting, instinctive shooting. Um, but at some point, because I taught, I remember teaching a police department ten years ago and teaching them how to point shoot, and I actually used the term point shooting. And the commander of it was a San Antonio police department. And they said, "No, no, no, no Mike, you can't teach right. point shooting." And I was like, "Oh." So then I was like, maybe I'll just name it alignment or something. Yeah. Because they, when you, like the first couple dudes I killed in combat, I remember not finding my sights. But then you, when you train, you walk into a room, you know, center fed room, you go to clear your point of domination, you look into that corner, you see the threat, you see the hands. Now it's a threat. You raise the gun, you acquire the target, you get the red dot where it needs to be, and you break the shot. But when you're in a situation where you know you're under stress and maybe in fight or flight, and you're trying to control the, your cortisol and adrenaline, and you raise that gun, you're in a race for your life. Right. And you don't have the time because you've identified the threat because you see the threat and focus. You don't have the time to change your depth of field. No. You just break the shot. Yeah. So what? How and do that's you back to good enough? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How, how do you navigate? Uh, does anybody even teach point shooting anymore? Or is that what it's called? Or what is the, it, what's the, guy the industry that I learned term? From uh, Dr. Middlebrooks, he was huge on point shooting. He actually awesome. uh, he didn't let me have sights on my STI until I could qualify master with no sights. Shut up! Did. Yeah, so I could I shot a master score with no sights on my pistol. Really? Yeah, and I I mean to this day he I just notched them off the gun. Yeah, well he just didn't mill them into the. They <laughs> literally had no sights. It was a it was a slide with no sight cuts. Really? Yeah, that's amazing, man. Yeah. I, and I but I'm, oh, it's man. a super valuable. You know, I don't know where. Oh, I do know where it came from. You know, bullseye shooters. You have to align the sights and yeah. press the trigger and all that stuff. The difference is, we don't have time for that. Slow aim fire. Yeah, right. you have slow aim fire. We world. don't have time for all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you see it. Um, it actually was the the best example of this. Um, I had a, a company commander come out and bring his guys, and he's like, "This is what I want them to be able to do at the end of the session. They, I want them to be able to 
bring the gun out and shoot these dot. He had found some dot drills online, right? So yeah. we're doing 10 yard dot drills and like I'm an E4, E5, like whatever, sir, we'll do this. <laughs> so we go out there and it just happened that one of my buddies had, was one of the reps for simunitions. Yeah. And he brought out some guns and, uh, he was like, Oh, y'all want to shoot these? And of course everybody jumps on it. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we, we pull out these things. He starts running these guys through some of these scenarios and I'm up on the berm filming this and it gets done an hour, hour and a half later. And I'm like, all right, check it out guys. I'm like in the last hour. Now mind you guys, I've got video of this. So nobody lie. I'm like, raise your hand. If you saw the sights one time <laughs> or you felt the trigger one time, nobody, nobody, nobody. nobody. Yeah. Yep. And that's simunitions. That's not bullets for yep. your life, you know? Yeah. And so my point to, to him was like, why are we training a skill that is completely that your guys are, are it's irrelevant. You're yeah, it's never unrealistic. Gonna it. It's You're unrealistic. never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I would always caveat that with like, I'm not telling you to shoot without sights. Yeah. If you have time and you can do it, 100% use your sights. Yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm going to teach you how to do it if you can't. Yep. You know, if the, if it's Cause that's the worst like, case scenario, it's the worst case scenario, yeah. which is why you'd be, pull, you know, that's why a soldier's pulling out his pistols because his rifle and his buddy's rifle went down. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah. bad. Yeah. That's such a great point, man. It's I'm to hear you say all this out loud. I've, I've talked to you before about it. That's why I kind of re-emphasize it in my blocks of instruction. But when I teach law enforcement, I'm so adamant, especially patrol officers, because even Sephardic. When I learned in Sephardic to draw a pistol, it was like a, a five point movement or whatever. But mm -hmm. I, I would rail the gun from my chest in the high ready position to extending the gun on target, and in that slow movement of railing the gun, I was supposed to find my front sight. Yes. Except for in a situation where I'm pulling my pistol out, my carbine just went down. Right. So I'm, that means I'm mid middle of a gunfight, and now I'm <laughs> pushing my gun, and you want me to find my front sight along the way. Um, I'm breaking shots as soon as I get that thing aligned right. you know, to defend my life. And I didn't really start understanding the reality of that until combat. And then I started asking the question, and then going back and teaching LEOs, if, if you, if they, these guys haven't, like you said, they're an institutional guy and maybe it's a company commander or a, or a lieutenant, whatever it is, and they haven't been in that situation, they think that's the right answer. But it's like, just take it from the practical shooting community. How right. are they shooting this tar target so fast? It's not because they're sitting there acquiring a target, changing their depth of field, getting a front sight, clear focus and breaking the shot. Yeah. I, I will tell you this in practical competitions last year, I felt the trigger and aligned the sights on one target. Wow. One target. What was that, that target? It was like a good shot. It was a headshot plate from 26 yards. Wow. And I shot it on like, I wasn't like on the move, but I came into position, like kind of did like a little stutter step, paused and broke the shot. But I saw a perfect sight picture and I felt a perfect trigger squeeze and I center punched that plate. But wow. out of all the shots I took last year in competition, that's the only one that was a good shot. Wow. So st uh, is still competition, like a still challenge, is that different or is it still the same? You just got to rep it. Same. I mean, it's as far as the shot process. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing a flash sight picture and the gun's going off. Flash sight picture, the gun's going yeah. off. You know? And when you say flash, you mean it's just in the background of your vision because you've got a hard focus on yeah, the target. Generally, now the only exception is if I, if I'm going to shoot like a plate rack or something. Yeah. Because then it's, it, the spacing is consistent and the targets are generally bright enough that I can see them while I'm, while I've got a soft front sight focus. Yeah. And yeah. it's a small enough target that I need some type of sights to be able to hit it consistently at that rate of speed. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the movement's the same the because movement's the same. yeah, because you're yeah. working across the entire yeah. thing. 
Man, okay. What is your what is your go to training package when you go to the range? Is it you know pro timer targets? Like what 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 is your setup when you go to practice now? So generally, I do all my training on a plate rack and maybe three ipsic targets. That's I don't plate have, rack three ipsic targets. That's about all I take. Yeah, I that's mean, all you need. Yeah, it, because the more I am very adamant about training specifically. Like I'm I'm gonna go and I'm gonna work on the draw. The or a better example is like shooting on the move. Yeah. I'm gonna go work shooting on the move. The first thing that I have to do is get my movement correct. So when I'm practicing shooting on the move initially, I don't care where the bullets go. Yeah. As long as I'm hitting the berm, I'm good. Because all I'm focused on is can I keep the gun flat and I'm and I'm moving at the rate that I decided to move fast or slow, you know, managing that. After that, then I start incorporating some shooting and actually caring about how good I can shoot on yeah. the move. But I don't, that's just the only, that's the drill that I'm going to do. And I'm going to set the bar. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to do this drill in this amount of time. Yeah. And then I will not leave until I can do it in that amount of time because I didn't just come up with that number from anywhere. I said to go win nationals, I need to be able to shoot this drill in this speed. Yeah. So I go and I train it until I can do that because what I don't want to have happen is I get to the nationals and I say, man, I, you know, I wanted to run that drill in 250 and I was running it in 265. You know, I'm not prepared to win this match. Mm. So if I draw the line, I say, this is how good I need to be. That's it. Yeah. So, and I will stay there until I reach that goal or, you know, that day or the next day or whatever. Yeah. But it, you know, I don't settle for. That's how deliberate this process is. It's, it's deliberate. That mental management class. I'm like, I tell them like, it's a mathematical process to go do whatever you want to do. You so this mental management class, you haven't, you've never done this for civilians yet. No. Hmm. Man, I'd love no. to host that. Man, yeah. maybe we should talk. I'd love yeah, we, to just we figure something out. Uh, that'd be amazing. Because I'm big on mindset, but just to just to actually bring people together and hear hear that message about, you know, because I you when you look at. When I look at mental modeling and mental management and mindset, you have to take it from the people who have been at the highest levels of stress oh, consistently, yeah. consistently, consistently, and performed, and performed, right, and and done well. Like yeah. uh, there's a there's a couple of books out there that uh, I've read on mindset, and um, one of the ones is talk about talks about Olympic athletes and that yeah. pressure with that's winning applied, in mind with winning in mind yeah, by right? Lanny Basham, yeah. super good book, yep. and that's definitely recommended and. Um, I always think about that you being on the cusp and that amount of pressure. And I felt that in combat. I haven't felt it a lot in competition. I do feel it like when I do, uh, I'll, I'll do a stress shoot every class and I'll, I'll lead the stress shoot and, and really be creative and make up the stress shoot. And I feel that, that mild stress of trying to perform. And it's amazing to me that um, you could figure a while, figure out a way as an expert to deconstruct that mm -hmm. and then intelligibly communicate it yep. to give people the winning advantage. Yeah. So we, yeah. where it all came yeah. from was we, uh, I had a, I had a guy, middle management guy and, uh, you know, there was one, one guy from each team went and worked with this guy. And what I felt like he was trying to do was make a problem was to cause a problem hmm. that only he could fix because that's how he was getting paid. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm good, I don't need him. Yeah. Yeah. So he has to identify a problem and it's gotta be a persistent problem for him to keep a job. Oh, wow. So, and the other side of it was, I found out that a lot of the, a lot of the programs are developed by guys that are like, you know, you, they see a high performing athlete and the guy's going to do something and they're like, Hey man, you know, what's the most important thing to you? And the guy rattles off like 
three these three things, man. And he goes yeah. and he performs. And then <laughs> the 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 guy that's trying to figure out how these guys are so good go and write a chapter in a book about these three things and why they're the yes. most important thing. Yeah. And with no background, no idea, like I can read all the books just like anybody else. I, mean, yeah. I can understand the words. So if you're getting the knowledge out of a book, that's not that much of an advantage. And so the the purpose of that was to help my guys at the AMU have a actionable set of techniques to accomplish the goals that they set out and understand mm-hmm. how to train, how to set a goal, you know, and understand why when you go and, and start off any new endeavor or you get evaluated, you know, there's people with like uh, testing anxiety, Yeah, you know, it's the same type thing. You, 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 you can manage that in a correct way to enable your success. Yeah. And there's a process that you can use to do that. I love that, man. I love that because that it's it's that tangible structure as opposed to what a lot of these experts in quotations that have a lot of philosophy and like right. vague and but indefinite. You need to be in the zone. Yeah. What's the zone? Yeah. Well, you know, you'll know when you're there. Well, why do I need you? Fine, I'm gonna exactly. know. When I'm- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mindset is everything. What? Yeah. What does that even mean? Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Man. Okay. So, I, I, man, I could don't get me started because I could I could be on this thing all day talking to you because I, I I look at this kind of podcast as an opportunity to to extract uh, and learn myself, which is rare in a podcast. Not nothing against past guests, but in this kind of opportunity, your your knowledge and technical. Uh, and tactical expertise and the validation of your accomplishments is impressive, man. You've done so that. good. I'm pr- I'm really Thank proud you. of you as a senior that. NCO and and seeing you come up in the military and you know help my detachment out before we went to Libya and did good stuff. Um, and then to see where you're at right now, I've always been interested in your field of expertise and what you're what you have going on specifically. But to get and talk to you, man, I, I appreciate. I appreciate the time, man. Appreciate everybody listening for. For everything what for the listen per, the people that are listening to you do you have social media do you have the website can you can you give people a way to you know tap into your knowledge yeah, and um, content? i've got a, my own personal website just daniel horner.com uh and uh um daniel uh daniel.horner three gun at uh on instagram and um the web the training website is on vertus.com and that's v-i-r-t-u-s correct com. who yeah. are some of the guys that you have uh so in- on that website we've got uh you know jerry micklick max michelle lena michlick shane coley me um todd and colby hodnett are going to be bringing some stuff on for the long range rifle uh you know we might have some field craft that'd be awesome on there man. soon yeah, um, but it's extremely high level it's it's basically the concept is it's already vetted. It's the top guys in every field. Like you can come on there and, and trust the source that it's coming from. Awesome. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Daniel Horner, thank you so much, man. Thank you guys. Really appreciate the opportunity.